Hello and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the Poop Detective. And I'm Jen, the Magical Mapper. This is episode 13, Knights of the Near Shore, where we will explore armoring impacts to the shoreline. Today, we will learn more about how we almost didn't make it out alive in the San Juan Islands. Mm. How we can coax the hard armor off of shorelines. And how we use GIS to find our identity. And opportunities for shoreline monitoring. You know I love monitoring. Mm-hmm. As we progress through this episode, you may want to keep your friends close and your anemones closer. Yot, 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 yot. No. Quit trying to act I'm appealing than to you. the ute. <laughs> nice. Well, listeners, you may know from our previous stories that Amy and I love to kayak. We also like to take many vacations. Accurate. Mm-hmm. One year in November, we rented a beach cabin on Orcas Island. We were actually supposed to be going to Thailand and um, instead ended up doing that trip because oh, we couldn't right. go that year because of my appendectomy. That's right. So this was our November in lieu of <laughs> Thailand trip to the San Juans. Yeah, and Orcas Island is in the San Juans in northwestern Washington. And the rental came with kayaks and a book room, which was exciting. And all sorts Jen of- Jen got that room. Yeah, that's right. And all sorts of fun amenities like that. It was pretty gorgeous at the beginning of our trip. Like, really beautiful. Sunny and clear. clear. And, yeah. The water is all turquoise blue and mm-hmm. super clear. Very cold still, but- Yeah. But for some reason, we decided to go out and explore the island and save kayaking for later in the trip. And of course, later in the trip, it was not quite so nice. It's really irritating when the weather isn't very cooperative. Exactly. It was cloudy and colder and windier, which made for more choppy seas. But we went out anyway, bundled up in our winter clothes. We were on the northern side of the island, which is typically a bit sketchier in terms of rough seas and beach erosion and things. We went east at first, but we were getting a little sketched out that there weren't any beach areas to pull up to if one of us overturned or anything happened. There were just steep, rocky cliffs and bluffs. High bluffs. High bluffs. Very high bluffs. Very high. Like, there was ladders on some of them. Yes. I didn't want to climb a ladder. Yeah, there still like wasn't really even beach to yeah get out of the yeah. kayak. Like it, the tide was too high for there to be any beach to get out mm-hmm. there or whatever. Yeah. So we decided to head back and head west instead, where there were some bays and lower shorelines. And we headed that way, and the current seemed much stronger over there. And the seas were definitely choppier, and it was hard to paddle. And if we got swept out, we would go further west and away from land. And normally Amy is pretty confident, so I'm not worried. She's a rescue diver and has like a little bit of wilderness first aid training, like a two-hour class back in high school. I'm totally wilderness first aid trained. What? When Jen asked me, I literally was like, yeah. And then I was like, well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, she's usually very confident that she can handle any situation. So I'm not usually worried either. But Amy started getting really worried and thinking we should head back. So, of course, I got really nervous and was pretty sure that we were going to die. Did we even make it out alive? Did we make it out alive? It's so hard to say. I wasn't sure we were going to. This is all some kind of nightmare dream. (laughs) So we cut our kayaking short and headed back to the cabin. 
It was probably for the best since my hands had gotten wet from paddling and were a bit icy. And the cabin was nice and toasty with a fireplace. With us looking out over the water still. It was and it books. was a sweet spot. Yeah, and also we didn't die. Yay. Woo-hoo. Hey Amy, what do you call a long, skinny fish wearing makeup and a suit of armor? I don't know. Pretty Sir Eel. <laughs> Amy says no. So, moving right along. So today, we will be discussing how we turned our shorelines into knights mm. by armoring them, and how we can turn them back into soft, supple, better beaches by more closely mimicking natural processes. Nice. So, some of you may be wondering, what is hardshore armoring? Why have we been using it, and what kind of ecological impacts has it had? Or you might not even care about the ecological impacts, you might just be like, What's up? (laughs) So shoreline armoring includes activities that basically harden the shoreline. They're sometimes called seawalls or bulkheads. You might see a riprap rock wall, which is like that large black rock, Mm. typically in our area at least. And they are built with wood or rock or concrete. And they harden the shoreline. Oftentimes, these structures were initially built to stabilize the shoreline from erosion and wave action with the assumption that this would result in protection of property and structures, which is not a horrible idea if you have a beach that you perceive as kind of eroding away. Mm -hmm. But in the Puget Sound, most of our beaches actually have low to moderate erosion potential. So hard armoring typically isn't necessary, and it causes a whole slew of problems, especially in those places where it's not really needed. This does, of course, mean that in some instances, especially in relation to existing property, keeping harm armoring may be necessary to prevent a landslide or something like that. So Right. I think that a lot of shoreline development is supposed to minimize their need for building in places where they would need new armoring, but I also hear that there's a lot of shoreline armoring still going in, hard armoring still going in, so it's unclear how effective those rules actually are. Interesting. So this hard armoring, it actually results in a loss of beach, and that's through scouring and by blocking the flow of sediment from feeder bluffs. So you have two kind of things that are going on when you hard armor these beaches. One is they lose the sands and, and other beach sediments as the wave action is pushing up against the bulkhead or seawall. And then the other one is that those walls actually cut off the flow from feeder bluffs which are naturally supposed to put that beach sediment back into the system, it actually cuts that off. So it it strikes in two ways. Mm. So And then it also worsens erosion on nearby beaches and harms the ecological balance needed for the survival of forage fish, juvenile salmon, shellfish, and other native species. Doesn't sound very good. Not very good. No. Natural erosion is important for nearby beaches as beach sediment is cyclically eroded and replenished, and for nearshore ecosystem processes. According to the shorefriendly.org website, we now know that bulkheads are unnecessary on most Puget Sound shorelines and can actually worsen overall erosion. They also damage delicate habitat that is crucial to the survival of our coastal species from insects and seabirds to salmon and orcas. No, not the orcas. Yeah, exactly. Whack fact, according to the Department of Ecology, feeder bluffs are areas where a bluff is actively eroding and providing sediment to replenish nearby beaches. Whack, whack fact, 
Over 90% of Puget Sound beaches are fed sediment from eroding bluffs. That's 90, 9-0. Wow. Meanwhile, 33% of bluffs are unable to replenish beach sediments due to shoreline armoring. Mm. So those aren't good numbers together, really. No. So as anybody that's been to a beach may be aware, typically beaches are made of sand and gravel or maybe rock, but we're going to kind of talk more about the sand and gravel in this episode. Mm -hmm. And that is moved from these nearby bluffs or feeder beaches by shoreline processes that include wind and waves and currents. And sediment transport typically happens within a definable area. The areas are all different size based on the natural characteristics and the shape of the shoreline and how wind and tides and currents move through that area. But those definable areas are called drift cells. In Puget Sound, there are over 800 drift cells. Wow. You can check out the Washington Department of Ecology's Coastal Zone Atlas for maps of specific drift cells which show where sediment is originating and how it moves within the cell. Yay, maps. In real life, as waves roll onto the beach, they send some sediment out to deeper water while depositing some onto the beach. And eventually that it replenishes the sand on the beach, but it may also create sand spits. The shore-friendly website also has some great links that show how sediment moves across the shoreline in several locations throughout Puget Sound, such as Dungeness Spit or Eagle Point. Dungeness Spit is on the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and Eagle Point is on San Juan Islands. Links to those images in our show notes. Dungeness Spit is actually the longest natural sand spit in the United States, and it's formed by sediment transported from feeder bluffs to the west towards Port Angeles with the general direction of the drift cell moving sediment to the east. Whereas Eagle Point is just a rocky point on one of the San Juan Islands, and that actually acts as natural hard armoring and doesn't result in much sediment deposition or movement. Hmm. Why were the Middle Ages called the Dark Ages? Because they were like backwards and stuff? (laughs) No, because there were too many knights. But what else is happening when (laughs) shorelines are armored moving right along? Besides stopping the natural sediment transport process, vegetation and marine habitat is directly displaced by bulkheads and seawalls. In addition, they lead to a coarsening of sediment on nearby beaches, which makes them less hospitable to species that depend on fine sediment for feeding and spawning, such as forage fish and juvenile salmon. Hmm. The impacts are worse when bulkheads are built below the high tide line. Among the most damaging effects of hard armoring is the loss of the shallow corridor that young salmon, they say typically within 25 feet of the high tide mark or so, need to migrate to the open ocean. So that's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then also forage fish use that area to spawn in. And they need the correct size of beach sand and Mm -hmm. rock for spawning also. So... (laughs) All of this is kind of messing up our fish on the lower level of the food chain, which then has rippling repercussions all the way up the chain to the orca. Oh, yeah, which our southern resident killer whales and a host of other native species depend on for survival. (sighs) Sad. What are soft shore protection techniques? Mm, sometimes previously referred to as soft shore armoring, but it's mm-hmm. not really armoring, so I kind of like how they changed the name to more accurately reflect the technique. Typically, and it, it really does depend on what kind of shoreline you have and what kind of wave action 
currents, that kind of stuff that you have going along your beach. So really talking to a professional is best to start with. But the best option, if possible, is keep the shoreline as natural as possible and allow for the natural processes to continue. Mm -hmm. And again, just keeping in mind that there are sites where some kind of armoring may be necessary to protect existing property. Island County, though, I saw they actually have people that will move their houses. Oh, really? And they did a cost comparison of three neighboring sites. One of them was like 66 feet back from the bluff. One of them was 25 feet back from the bluff. And one of them was like 22 feet back from the bluff. And then they moved it to 75 feet back from the bluff. Mm -hmm. The one that moved it back, they got $50,000 more value in their house by doing that. I'm sure it costs some money to move a house. Right. But like that's pretty significant increase in property right. value in one year where the other two, the one closest to the shoreline actually decreased in value. Right. Because it's probably a bluff that is at some risk for eroding or something mm -hmm. like that. And they do. There's a lot of kind of cost benefit analysis out there that help you understand what makes the most sense for your beach also. Right. But anyways, all beaches naturally have built-in protection against erosion. The sand and gravel dissipate wave energy. Vegetation and drift logs serve to buffer and stabilize sediment and soils. Soft shore protection techniques generally include some combination of native plantings, anchored drift logs, gravel berms, sand replenishment, where they're actually bringing new sand into the beach, and then site recontouring. And all of these, they're engineered systems, but they're designed to try to really closely mimic a natural system. Mm -hmm. Like I said, they are engineered and they're built to withstand nearshore wave and erosion energy. These systems still impact nearshore habitat, but do so in a way that is less so than traditional hard armoring. Also, instead of having a wall along your property, which actually prevents access to your beach, except for where you have a stairway or something like that, the entire beach becomes accessible. So you actually gain beach access by installing soft shore protection techniques. And then as far as continuing maintenance costs, all residential shorelines need some amount of maintenance. but as in the natural solution, soft shores generally require relatively little. Experts have reported that in the first 20 years, only about 4% of projects have needed any maintenance. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. Now, when it gets to the 30 to 35 years, that number increases to about 15 to 20%. But that's still not that it, much. Right. And then when the time does finally come around for maintenance for soft shore techniques, experts say it's typically about a third of the cost of the initial installation. Hmm. And so consequently, it's cheaper typically to install than traditional bulkheads, and you get another round of savings in the life of the, the armoring, mm -hmm. I mean, of the soft shore protection techniques. Because bulkheads eventually fail too. And Correct. Erode. And they, yeah. need, well, they need maintenance, maintenance. Mm -hmm. more maintenance than the soft shore techniques. Mm -hmm. And some more good news, according to a report by Blue Engineering that was done for Island County. These benefits of using the soft shore armoring techniques include recreation and beach access, protection against erosion from storms and sea level rise, habitat and ecological function improvement, aesthetic value of a view, and cultural significance. Hmm. I mean, would you like to say, I'm sure friendly? Yes, but not like that. I'm sure friendly! <laughs> I'd like to say, I'm sure friendly. Hmm. I like my way better. Hmm. 
If you are a shoreline landowner and you want to know more about erosion potential of your beach or best practices to minimize shoreline erosion and better protect your property from the impacts of climate change, or maybe you just want help with streamlined permitting in your local jurisdiction, Mm. you should totally check out the Shore Friendly Program coordinated by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and Fish and Wildlife. Wow. Most Puget Sound counties have free services that range from workshops, individual site assessments, free engineering designs at sites that want to replace hard armoring with soft shore protection techniques. Wow, that's a really good deal. Links in our show notes. Also, nine Puget Sound counties and some municipalities provide property tax breaks. Get this up to 90% for certain conservation measures on their shoreline. I mean, that is a huge, huge deal. That's huge. Because I don't know if you are familiar, but a lot of times waterfront properties are kind of expensive, and so their taxes mimic that a little bit. Yeah, taxes on waterfront. So a 90% reduction on your shoreline property could be a huge cost savings for you during the year, certainly. Mm -hmm. You can also check out this Green Shores program, which is kind of a credit and incentive-based program like the LEED program. It's currently only available for Lake Whatcom and San Juan County residents, but you can go on there and, and look at kind of their best practices if you just wanted to get an idea of some other things you could do. Check out our show notes for more resources on permitting, a flow chart that talks about the different shoreline protection options based on the type of upland shoreline. Lots of good information. Hmm, that's pretty cool. How do you make an octopus laugh? You tickle its beak? You give it tentacles. <laughs> Why should you never fight an octopus? Because it's too well armed. Uh, <laughs> this is gonna get a trout real quick oh my so now here's a little story all about how seahurst beach shoreline armoring got flipped and broken down uh. it's totally different nobody will know what i'm saying <laughs> so next i just wanted to highlight one restoration project in puget sound and that is at the seahurst beach park it's located in Burien, Washington, which is between Tacoma and Seattle out on the Puget Sound. The waterfront area of the park was hard armored with concrete and riprap rock wall in the 1970s. <laughs> wow. Since then, the beach has actually dropped three to four feet. Whoa. So this is what I'm talking about. So you have this wave action that is actually moving that sediment out and scour, moving that sediment out. But it's totally cut off from the upland feeder bluffs that would continue to replenish that beach naturally. But the hard armoring doesn't allow that sediment to get back down on the beach. Hmm. And so it just washes the sand away, basically, is what happens. And there's no source to replenish it. So I feel like this story does kind of illustrate some of the other stuff I was talking about a little better. Once prized clam digging grounds for the area tribes, Seahurst Park would come to be owned by a timber baron, Robert Fox, prior to King County acquiring the area for parklands in the 1970s. They were actually going to try to develop it, and King County came in and got funding to purchase the property instead of a developer, which is pretty awesome. That's, That's really awesome. It's like very steep on both sides, and then there is kind of a bench and then steep behind it. So hmm. it would have not been ideal for them building on or something. So uh, it's really great that it got preserved in right. the park instead. So the city of Burien acquired the park from King County with an expensive failing seawall as part of an annexation in the 1990s. 
You're welcome. I mean, I can't imagine why the seawall was failing if the beach had dropped three to three four, to four feet. feet. Right. Yeah. So then you start getting undermined. Yeah. yeah. Bulkheads, which is another thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. The existing bulkhead, it was failing. It was dropping rocks in to the near shore. It was creating a public safety issue and degrading the near shore habitat. As you may be able to imagine, not ideal conditions for forage fish and juvenile salmon that like to hang out in that intertidal area. Mm. And salmon seas like to hang out in the shallows, especially where there's overhanging nearshore vegetation. Mm-hmm. So the city was researching options of what they should do to manage this failing seawall, which included repairing it and keeping it there, and it was going to be very expensive. And so they actually determined that removing the seawall would both provide better public access opportunities, minimize the costs of repair and maintenance needed to operate and maintain the seawall, and it would improve the nearshore habitat. Win, win, win. Exactly. So once there was general agreement between the city, the Army Corps of Engineers, and a slew of other partners, then came the part where they needed to secure funding for the project. Yeah. After all, this was the biggest seawall removal project in Puget Sound to date. Wow. Seawall removal and beach restoration, even when not impacting upland structures, can be a costly affair. And unfortunately, that was the case with this project. Mm -hmm. The total cost came in around $8 million dollars. And that came from a variety of local, state, and federal sources. Pretty expensive. Work spanned about 10 years. So Mm. it was initiated. I think they actually did the feasibility study in 2001. And the first phase of the project removed about 1,200 feet of seawall. And then the second phase of the project, which started in 2013, removed an additional 1,800 feet of seawall. In total, over three quarters of a mile of beach was restored and the project created 169 acres of nearshore habitat, highly desired real estate for spawning forage fish and juvenile salmon seas. No. In addition to a stew of other no. native species. No. Are you going to eat them? Mmm, <laughs> delicious. Not very nice. And Seahurst Park Beach was actually recognized by the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association as a winner of its 2010 Best Restored Beach Award. Nice. The most recent phase of the project, which was completed in 2014, involved the removal of the bulkhead and lawn terraces and restoring a more natural, pebbly beach habitat, while also reconnecting the beach to the adjacent feeder bluffs, allowing the beach to be replenished and not continue to erode away, Mm. as it had previously been doing when the feeder bluffs were cut off by the seawall. The project required... 18,000 cubic yards of sand. So that's that three to four feet that dropped Uh out. This is how much they had to bring back in. That's almost six Olympic-sized pools full of sand. Wow. That is a a lot lot of sand. Yeah. I mean, I was like last night I was doing that thing with the numbers in front of my (laughs) face, but Mm -hmm. I was like, what can I compare this 18,000 to? Because I don't really have a good grasp of how big that is right so then interesting about olympic size swimming pools there's not a standard depth to them so they actually have different volumes so there is some debate but i feel like six is probably conservative but Uh a good way to describe what that actually looks like and so that is the sand that had been eroding from the beach over the past 40 years wow that intertidal area was backfilled and regraded to more of the natural shoreline Mm mm-hmm They took some logs and secured those in the upper zone of the intertidal to stabilize the shoreline and help absorb energy from wave action, Mm -hmm. which minimizes erosion. Mm -hmm. 
Guess how many plants they brought in, Jen? For like three quarters of a mile of shoreline? Mm-hmm. 20,000. You cheater. I No, is that is that the number? There's, that was a total guess. There's no way to ever know. Wow. Yes, 20,000. It was actually over 20,000 native wow. plants were added to the near shore to help stabilize the shoreline and restore the riparian and wetland habitats. They recreated a pocket estuary that is fed by three perennial streams. And the near shore improvements are expected to be beneficial to forage fish, including sand lance and surf smelt and enhancing salmon rearing habitat. Hey, that's good. Yeah. And it's in central Puget Sound where most of the shoreline is hard armored just because of right. the urbanized nature mm-hmm. of development in that area. Not necessarily because it's needed everywhere. Right. So this project demonstrated that seawall removal can result in years of improved community access. I mean, this will be an enjoyable site for people for years into the future. Mm -hmm. It eliminated the need to repair and continually maintain the existing failing seawall, which is an expensive endeavor. And it wouldn't have solved the problems related to the beach eroding away. So they would have had to continue to bring in sediment or something as a maintenance practice just to keep that wall in place. And it improved habitat for critical species in the Puget Sound. And again, like I was saying, in this central basin area where there's not a lot of that kind of habitat. So it's Mm -hmm. pretty exciting. Very exciting. So if you're in the area, it's just northwest of SeaTac. You should go check out Seahurst Park. Hmm. Bonus, it's a great place to access the beach. Yay! We really give kudos to the city of Burien, the Corps of Engineers, and all the other partners and funders that made this project possible. Now we only have like 799 miles of shoreline armoring left to remove. That number is not accurate. I was going to say. <laughs> Check out a link in our show notes to photos of the restoration project. Mm-hmm. Now, since the beach restoration project, which was back in 2014, the city of Burien is also working with DNR on inspecting and removing creosote treated wood that's washed up onto the shoreline at the park oh if you want to learn more about creosote removal in puget sound and how you can report creosote wood that is washed up onto a beach listen to our last episode pirate slash goat ships and rail dock ribs link in our show notes goat ships goat ships hmm i don't remember that being the name of the episode well you should maybe listen to the episode and then you would see that that's very clearly discussed in there okay cat fact did you know that even if you're not allergic to cats your cat might be allergic to you no one in 200 cats are believed to have asthma and this number continues to get bigger as you know more kitties live indoors and they're more frequently exposed to things like human dandruff and dust and pollen and cigarette smoke yeah isn't that crazy that's so crazy that just as one of her older cat has kitty asthma and she actually has like the little kitty asthma thing that she has to like give her a little poof and it's got a little (gasps) kitty mouth thing that goes over a little tiny kitty mouth. Oh no! It's so sad but so cute. (laughs) I need to see pictures of this. What does that even have to do with anything though, Jen? Nothing. I was just trying to change the subject to GIS. Oh, that's just like you. (laughs) Not that it has to do with GIS either. I was just trying to change the subject. (laughs) But before I get into today's GIS tool, I actually want to give you a little background. So how do you best determine how much benefit removing a particular shoreline armoring structure is going to create versus the cost of removal and potential other impacts? And how do you prioritize projects? Well, I just like think about what I want to do and then Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's what I'll do. Well, just kidding. First, 
you start by mapping all of the data. All of it? All of it. <sighs> so the Department of Ecology has a coastal zone atlas, as you mentioned which earlier. Which I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Which is a GIS mapping tool with many layers of data. And you can make your own maps using their online tools. However, the data is pretty coarse. And in some cases, it's not very accurate. And it's kind of difficult to use by local decision makers. It's clunky and... It's like if you know how to do analysis with GIS, you might be able to use it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But if you're just trying to go in there and make a map for a first time, it's not really all that user-friendly. To help solve this problem, a project called Beach Strategies was initiated. And this is a two-phase project, which is in the second phase now. But it was initiated and funded by the state... And the work is being performed by Coastal Geologic Services. Who's a consultant. Mm -hmm. Phase one was all about collecting the data. And it was completed in 2017. New tools and better sources were used to map historic feeder bluffs. In the past, historic feeder bluffs weren't even mapped if the shoreline was armored. Some of those armored shorelines actually used to be feeder bluffs. They also mapped shoreline armoring in a few pilot areas. And they mapped drift cells and more coastal features to a greater level of detail. And phase two is about developing strategies and easy-to-use decision-making tools. More on that in a minute. But I was looking into this, and I got sucked in the other day. So Nerd alert. I'll post a lot of links in the show notes, and just be warned. It's very fascinating, and you might get sucked in for a couple hours. I almost got sucked in this morning <laughs> when I was supposed to be just doing some final edits on our notes for this episode, and uh, I was like, wait, is this the thing you got sucked into? And she was like, yes. I was like, okay, walk away. away. <laughs> walk away. We ain't got time for that. Exactly. But that brings me to today's GIS tool, which is the identity tool. The identity tool was one of the many tools used in phase one of the Beach Strategies Project. And what it does is it creates a geometric intersection of two map layers, and it results in creating a new data set that has the attributes of both of the original layers, along with the new geometry, which is split where the two layers overlap. To give you an example from the Beach Strategies project, the drift cell lines were split by parcel lines. So one single drift cell can be miles long or several hundred feet long. And it might go across several parcels. So in order to do better outreach and know whose land that was, they wanted to split that up based on parcels so they could track ownership. So they used the identity tool to split a single drift cell into multiple segments based on the parcel boundaries. Hmm. So the parcel ID and the attributes from the parcel layer were added into the new drift cell segments, along with new information on each segment, like how long each segment of that entire drift cell was. So the identity tool, it's easy to run, and it only requires a few inputs, but it does require an advanced license of the Esri desktop software. I'll put more links in the show notes, and be sure to see the GIS tools blog on our website for more information. Back to the Beach Strategies Project Phase 2, that's supposed to wrap up later this year, and one of the outcomes of this project is supposed to be easy-to-use GIS web-based decision-making tools, which will be available on the WDFW website. So be on the lookout for that, mm. and hopefully that'll come out later this year. Also, there's ongoing discussion on ways to maintain the data, particularly the shoreline armoring data, and continue that mapping 
Puget Sound wide, because right now the better mapping is only in three counties. Mm -hmm. So there's ongoing discussion on how they'll do that. And one idea is to crowdsource. So if a citizen science opportunity becomes available, we'll let you know. Speaking of citizen science. Is that my cue to quit talking about GIS? Yeah. Okay, fine. If you don't want to wait for a potential citizen science project, why not create your own? You can help out by monitoring the shoreline in a number of ways by using the Shoreline Monitoring Toolbox. The Shoreline Monitoring Toolbox is maintained by Washington Sea Grant, who we've mentioned many times because they do some excellent they work. They do some really cool stuff. And it includes tools and protocols developed by many projects and organizations, such as the protocols for mapping shoreline armoring developed by the consultant in the project I mentioned earlier. Local governments, volunteer groups, environmental nonprofits, and basically anyone doing any type of shoreline monitoring are encouraged to use the standardized approaches found in the toolbox in order for these studies and monitoring efforts to be cohesive and as useful as possible. Because if everyone uses the same methods, data can be compared across projects and status and trends and things in restoration outcomes can be analyzed. Whoa, mind blown. Right. This so, is a big pet peeve of mine. Exactly. <laughs> the state doesn't just have a standardizer data or have some level of data cohesion so that it can be more mm -hmm. easily used from one place to the next or compared across jurisdictions because most of our ecosystems don't share our political boundaries. Right. So hopefully by making more people aware of this, people will be using this and we'll be using the same measures and same methods. And yeah, so the approaches are easy to use and are affordable. So if you have a monitoring project, check out the toolbox. And if your group wants to do a monitoring project, but it's not sure what to monitor, there's even a decision tree to help you get started. I love decision trees. Right? We'll post links and more information in the show notes, but the decision tree has things like low to medium mm -hmm. to high cost, or how much technical background you need, or how many people you need, the different levels of effort, time, different things like that. So you can choose an appropriate project. Awesome. Yeah. So there you have it. The end of episode 13. Mm. We hope you have giggled and guffawed <laughs> and learned your way through and that we have inspired you to make it out alive. We learned how Jen and I almost didn't make it out alive. Why removing shoreline armor is a good thing for the knights. Mm -hmm. How to get an identity with GIS <laughs> and toolboxes for monitoring shorelines. Please join us on October 1st for our next episode where we hope to have an exciting surprise. Assuming the stars and culverts align. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like TuneIn, CastBox, Himalaya, iHeartRadio, etc. I haven't even heard of all of those, but we're there. And please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash willwemakeitoutalive. Also, if you're more visually inclined, check out our YouTube page. Links to all of that in our show notes. Until next time, will, will we, we make, make it, it out alive? alive? This is Amy the Poop Detective signing off. And Jen the Magical Mapper signing off. Goodbye. 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 Bye-bye. <laughs>